Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and my usual co-host, Thomas Fry, had another engagement he had to attend, so this is just a solo episode. Uh, Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on this podcast. I just finished up a stellar interview with a scholar that I have followed for a very long time and for whom I have a great deal of respect. That is Brian Kaplan, who is professor of economics at George Mason University. He's a prolific author. Uh, He's a prolific debater and speaker, and he just does a fantastic job of taking economic insights and applying them to crucial issues of the day. We spent about 40% of the conversation talking about his approach to economics, uh, where he's at now, how he got into the field, how he thinks about using economic insights to tease apart complex topics. And we spent about 60% of the interview talking about his new book, which is called Don't Be a Feminist. And it is actually dedicated to his wife and his daughter. After having a daughter, he began to think about the ideology of feminism, about its core tenets, about the way that it functions, and about whether or not those things are true. And he ultimately came to the conclusion that feminism, as it's presented today, is false and destructive, and he wanted to write a book that elucidates that case. So I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, I hope that you get a lot out of it. And don't forget to like the episode. Leave us a comment. Reach out to us. Tell us what you like and what you don't like. And with all that having been said, here's the interview. Tonight, we're joined by Brian Kaplan. Brian is professor of economics at George Mason University and a New York Times bestselling author. He's written The Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, and How Evil Are Politicians, among others. He's joining us today to talk about his latest book, Don't Be a Feminist. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Dr. Kaplan, thanks so much for being on the show. Fantastic to be here. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University. I also substack uh, at uh, betonit.substack.com. Been a blogger for 22 years. I am also a associate of the Salem Center at the University of Texas. In terms of my background, I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to UC Berkeley as an undergraduate. I went to Princeton as a graduate student. And then I got my first job out of Princeton, which was here at George Mason. I've been here ever since. Lovely. I, uh, I really like the George Mason, Mason faculty. We, we've talked to a couple of them. I read uh, Peter Botke's work and uh, Robin Hansen's work all the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you were associated with the, uh, the Salem Center. Uh, I know Greg Salmieri out there and Tara Smith. Yeah, or- yeah. Uh, so basically, I mean, I met those guys before COVID, but during COVID, they gave me a home away from home and they found office space for me and stuff and helped out my kids. And we, and we basically had a big party in Austin for about three months during COVID, which was awesome. And then afterwards, we worked at this deal where I would move my blog over to the Samuel Center and also hang out there periodically. So 
end of this month, I'll be back in Austin for another week if anyone's around there. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, that's really cool. I, I hope there's some fertile crossover discussion there. That, I mean, there's the objectivists and they're not quite Austrians, but they're very, you know, similar mm-hmm. to them. And then I think you, you were the one that wrote why I'm not an Austrian, right? Is mm-hmm. that, is that's correct. So they, they, there would be some productive conversations that could happen there. They, they just recently published um, uh, the foundations of a free society, which takes the objectivist ideas and applies them to questions in mm-hmm. government. And there's a lot of like talk there about subjective value. And is it really subjective in the way the Austrians meant? And probably not. And actually there's a couple of different concepts that are being conflated. I just, I just really hope that you guys get a chance to hash all that out. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. So uh, I just wanted to ask a methodological question. If, if you could talk me through the way you approach applying an economic lens to social issues. We're going to talk about your new book, uh, Don't Be a Feminist, Mm -hmm. uh, and your application of economics to that. But I just wondered if you had some sort of broad insights to share Mm -hmm. about how that process unfolds. I mean, honestly, for me, the most important thing is paying close attention to the world, looking at it carefully, trying to get a a big picture of what's going on, paying attention to details, just you're finding out whether you're, you know, I mean, obviously the first step is just to get representative data as much as you can, but also if you're relying upon other kinds of evidence, you know, if you're going to go on firsthand experience, at least talk to other people, well, your firsthand experience, like my firsthand experience, I try to be really empirical whenever I approach questions. I do know a lot of economic theory, a lot of psychological theory, a lot of sociology, so on. So I've got a big toolbox of ideas that facts will inspire me to apply and say, maybe this is the right story in this case. But honestly, I'm much bigger on just being super empirical than most people that I know, and especially most economists. So mm-hmm. most economists, you know, they'll, they'll sort of say, well, here's a model we're working on. So well, does that model make any sense at all? Why don't we just pay more attention to the facts? Um, I would say that if you were going to classify me, I think of myself as a behavioral economist. So the kind of economist that combines empirical psychology with economic theory and understanding the world. To me, it just seems crazy to think that you would understand the social world without caring about what people believe and feel. And that's what I try to bring to almost any question that I study is not just economics, which I have spent a lot of time on, of course, but just saying, well, is this the right model in this situation, given what actual human beings are like? How do those different toolkits interface with each other? Because I'm also very interested in, in the social sciences. And I mean, we're mm-hmm. futurists here. We do emerging technology, but we find that there's a paucity of analysis specifically on social trends. Like most futurists want to talk about crypto mm-hmm. and not think as yeah. much about how it might change protocols, the <laughs> protocols by which people interact. So, uh, and, but the, there's also the tendency to want to psychologize when you should be doing economics. Yeah. I mean, Mises famously, famously says that, you know, like you can't tell a person what they're doing is irrational. You can only show them that on the basis of their own theories, they can't achieve the means that they, mm-hmm. they can't achieve the ends they want with the means that they're using right so uh it it can it can blend together and become a mishmash that isn't all that productive how do you how do you sort all that out well i mean i would just say that mises is if not wrong he's just overstating there's a bunch of different definitions of irrational that people use one of the big ones is just making the same mistake over and over again despite the mistake being pointed out to you Mm -hmm. i mean i mean like one that we teach to almost all econ one students i think we should is just the cost fallacy of saying that because you paid for a movie ticket, you paid 20 bucks for a movie ticket, the once you're there, if you don't like the movie, you should still stay there because after all, you don't want to waste your money. This is something that economists have long been saying, no, no, no. I mean, basically to sit there watching a movie you don't like when you have already paid the 20 bucks is like having a free job where you watch stuff you don't like. Since you can't, if you can't get your money back, then it doesn't make any difference that you already paid the 20 bucks. So that would be just one small example, I think, of where 
you know, either Mises is just wrong or he's just using the word in a way that's overly narrow and excluding other definitions that are extremely useful. I mean, in terms of what social science could tell futurists, I mean, I would just start with, well, what's the big picture about human economic history? Big picture is we've had a few million years of humans and human-like critters that were desperately poor by modern standards living at this hunter-gatherer level. And then just a few thousand years ago, suddenly things started improving at an historically incredible pace of like improving 1% per century. And then, you know, like you know, a couple thousand years ago, started improving you know, at least in some areas by like, you know, 1% per decade or something like that. Uh, and then of course there were some civilizational collapses and so on. But anyways, you know, for the last 200 years, a lot of areas of the world have had growth of like 1% a year in per capita living standards which again, of course, when you're living through, it still doesn't sound that fast, but when you extrapolate, what would that mean if it went on for a thousand years? And it's like everyone on earth is as rich as Bill Gates. What, do you agree with Deidre McCloskey that that's maybe the central fact for social science to explain is the remarkable increase in standard of living and progress that's been experienced over the past couple of centuries? It, it's at least one of the top five, probably the, probably the most important. I mean, again, if you were to say, what are other questions that would be of comparable importance? I was going to ask what that. What I think about a lot is how about you know, what makes human beings happy? Right? Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot that we can say about it. One thing that we've got, I consider excellent evidence on is that almost everyone greatly overestimates the effect of material well-being on human happiness. So we have this tension between this incredible fact that human well that human prosperity has increased so much with this other fact that we human beings can still be miserable even when they're crazy rich. So that to me is something that I dwell on a lot. I mean, and just think about why that is. You know, my pet theory is just that the problem is most people just spend their money so poorly. If people would focus on spending money on ways that actually would make them happy, then I think we would see the large effect of material well-being on human happiness. The problem is that people waste a lot of money on stuff that doesn't make anyone smile, like granite. <laughs> like what? Granite. People spend $25,000 to get granite for their kitchen. And I've never oh, oh. seen anyone look at that granite and go, oh, I love you, granite. I just, you make <laughs> me so happy. So it's like, why should you spend 25000 on that? It's stupid. When I get granite countertops, I'm just going to lay on them. That's where I'll sleep. I'll just kind of roll around. Yeah, look, look, it's I can imagine someone really enjoying it, but you know, I'd say most people enjoy an ice cream cone, one a single ice cream cone more than they've ever enjoyed their granite. <laughs> well, so do you have a, a broad theory as to what people should be spending their money on? Is it bespoke for each individual, or are there categories of things that actually? No, the literature reveals if you spend your money on these things as opposed to these things, uh, hmm. you get more out of it. Let's see. I mean, again, the, the ones that are obvious are things like you know, spending money to avoid doing things that make you unhappy. So, <laughs> right. so spending money to avoid commuting, for example, there's a lot of evidence commuting is one of the most miserable things people do. Plenty of people live in places where they could pay a few dollars and then have a fast pass where they get to where they don't have to wait in traffic. And a lot of people are so tight-fisted over that. I mean, what always amazes me is when I see people in $100,000 cars stuck in traffic while I'm driving my 20-year-old clunker, but I pay the extra to be in the fast lane, right? And it's like, look, obviously, like, one of us is wrong, I think, and yeah, it's you. Right? <laughs> like, why? You have to spend all this money on the car, and then you sit there miserable in traffic. I'm not wasting money on the car itself, which is easy to adjust to. 
But on the other hand, it's not easy to adjust to being stuck in traffic, which is just a really unpleasant experience. And it's one that's really hard to talk yourself out of. Oh, I actually am super happy here. I mean, just think yeah. about how fascinating the person, the pet, your, your passenger would have to be before you'd like, this is the best thing that ever happened to me is being stuck in traffic with you. Occasionally I get an audiobook that's like that. It's like, I don't mind. Uh, so a yeah. few of the Game of Thrones audiobooks were like that, but it, it's a rare thing. Even, even when I like the book, I usually prefer to be where I'm going sooner yes. rather than later. Um, what, what do you think are maybe three or four concepts from economics? And you can pull from sociology or psychology as mm -hmm. well that would be important for a person such as myself who's interested in futurism and emerging tech, uh, but who's not an economist. Well, like, what should I add to the toolkit? Let's see. So we already did economic growth. Let's see. Um, so another concept that I think is ultra important is called CPI bias. Have you heard of that? I have not, no. All right. Well, you know, you, you heard this, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. It's how we usually yep. measure inflation. Sure. All right. So for many decades, economists have realized that during normal times, the Consumer Price Index's growth is overstated because we're paying more money for higher quality products normally. Over time, the general tendencies for product quality to improve, often massively so, Official government statistics make some effort to adjust for this, but almost everyone who works with the numbers say that the government has not nearly adjusted enough, which amounts to when you factor quality into account, the, the quality of the stuff that you're buying, our you know, real living standards are probably been rising by a full percentage point or more than uh, the official numbers say, right? Which is a big deal, right? And then secondly, uh, there's also a good reason to think that CPI bias becomes more important as an economy develops, because when people are poor, they often just want more of the same stuff. If you're hungry, you just want two bowls of rice instead of one. But once you are rich, you don't want more bowls of rice. You want better rice. You want the fancy, flavorful rice, the Middle Eastern rice, so on. Yeah, yeah. Right? And this is this holds for so many other products. It's not the rich people. They don't want so much just more of the products the poor people consume, they want just incredibly futuristic, amazing products. So as a futurist, I would say that, first of all, just understand how far we come, being aware of CPI bias and how it leads us to underestimate the progress we made, that's one good thing. And then the other one is just to be mindful about the kinds of product of product quality improvements that we're likely to see. And, and you know, so, that, that, so, so that, anyway, so CPI bias, that's a really big deal. Let's see, other really useful concepts for futurists. I mean, this is one where I guess it's more, you know, you, well, you could put it in economics, the family or sociology. Uh, we've got a, a strong pattern of declining birth rates going back for a very long time. It seems to be affecting almost everywhere on earth. It is economically quite puzzling because when people say, oh, I can't, like, I can't afford to have more than one kid. It's like, you're a hundred times richer than tribesmen in Africa who have eight kids. So how can you say you can't afford it? All right, and it's understanding why that is because it makes a, you know, makes a big difference for how many people will be enjoying our amazing future. Now it also may probably makes a big difference for how long it takes to get there because mm -hmm. if there are fewer people, that means fewer geniuses, fewer geniuses mm -hmm. means slower progress. The low fertility seems to especially affect high genius classes of society, high genius segments of society, scientists, engineers, so on. And that means that it is another big drag on progress that you know, not only is the population growing at a slower rate or in many countries looks like it's gonna be declining, but also that the people that we most depend on for innovation seem to be among the least fertile. Uh, so that's something else to be thinking about 
a lot. Let's see, and there's plenty more, but those are the ones that pop into my head right now. Yeah, I've, I've been puzzled by the same phenomenon and worried by them as well. I've, I've got two kids and they're both geniuses, so I've done my part. But All right, uh, great. If, well, I, can squeeze it, if yeah, I can squeeze it, if I can squeeze it more, more, I will. Yeah, I mean, I've only got four kids, so like, <laughs> come, on, come on, get the lead out. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, we'll see. Well, I, I don't want to get into this whole thing in the podcast, but yeah, I'm, I'm weighing some factors. And I'd, li- I'd like to get one more in if I possibly could, but it's like jobs and debts. And yeah, debt, yeah. Debt, yeah, yeah, like it's, it's not easy, although it's a lot easier than if you were on the edge of starvation, that's for sure. So that's, that's absolutely true. So let's get into your, your new book, which is called Don't Be a Feminist. Uh, I thought that you know, it might be wise in the beginning just to start off somewhere obvious uh, and, and, and state that, you know, presumably you're not wanting to repeal the 19th amendment. Like you've got a specific thing you mean by that. So why don't you tell us why you chose that title and, and what it is you actually want to communicate to the, to the reader. My daughter was born 10 years ago. And almost as soon as she was born, I started thinking, what do I tell her about feminism? I've spent about 10 years writing this essay in my head and I finally put pen to paper. I will say I have always, as long as really, for as long as I can remember, I have thought there was something intellectually mistaken about the feminist movement and about the view of feminism. But this is what really got me thinking about what it precisely it is that I think is going wrong and what would be a better thing to say. Uh, just to start, there's the definition. If you go to dictionaries, they have a definition that says something like feminism is the view that men and women should be equal politically, economically, socially, right? which sounds good to a lot of people, but there's a big problem with this definition. Namely, if we go to public opinion data and there's been a very good nationally representative survey done and you ask people, are you a feminist or not? And then the uh, the survey also asks, so do you think that men and women should be equal politically, economically, socially? Guess what? Uh, Feminists almost all say yes. And non-feminists also almost all say yes. So there's something wrong with the definition that, that, uh, that you ascribe to yourself that actually describes essentially everyone in your whole society. It's like saying feminism is the theory the sky is blue. It's like, okay, I agree that you believe the sky is blue, but guess what? Everybody else believes the sky is blue. So how is that the distinctive feature of your worldview, right? And then the question next is, well, so then what would be a better definition of feminism? And the one that I put forward is this. Feminism is the view that our society treats men more fairly than women. It's the view that our society treats men more fairly than women, which then leads us immediately to a bunch of really interesting questions. Like, all right, so is that true? But if most, first and foremost, is that true? Is it really true that our society treats men more fairly than women? It's easy to come up with a list of all the ways that women are treated less fairly than men, and we all know them, right? So, you know, the pay gap or women spending more time, you know, women having less free time because when, you know, they, when they add up their hours of housework with their hours of paid work, then it's more than men's. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, violence against women, a you know, long list of complaints that people have about the unfairness of the way that women in our society are treated. And especially not just that they're not treated perfectly fairly, which would be trivial because everyone is treated unfairly to some degree. It's just a human society, that's what happens. But the idea that they are treated especially unfairly compared to men. Uh, but then uh, you're probably familiar with something called confirmation bias, right? Yep. Right, which says that when you make a list of reasons why you think something is so, you should also think of a list of reasons why something is not so. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's pretty easy to come up with a corresponding list of ways in which our society treats men less fairly than women. 
right? Um, you know, so just starting with a really obvious one, you can say that men predominate at the top of society. They're more likely to be CEOs or top scientists or leading politicians. It is also, however, totally true that men dominate at the bottom of society. They're much mm -hmm. more likely to be in prison, suicide, homelessness, mm -hmm. right? And we can go through a list and see that there are a bunch of other possibly plausible complaints that men have about how they are treated more unfairly than women. So at minimum, the thing to do is look at those and say, hmm, do we really know that women are treated less fairly than men on balance? But then since I am an economist, I've got some extra tools that I bring to bear on this. Uh, in particular, economists have long realized and, and done research on the simple insight that there's a big difference between inequality and unfairness. Uh, for example, I have zero Olympic medals. It is highly <laughs> unequal. Some people have way more than I do. But was it, is it unfair that I don't have those Olympic medals? Well, first of all, I never even tried to go and be in the Olympics. Second of all, if I did try, I would suck. All right, so is it unfair that someone who isn't good at, at sports doesn't get to be an Olympic athlete? Say, so if that's your standard of fairness, it's just a ridiculously high standard. It's not that I have been told, oh, we don't want anyone of your type here, Brian. Uh, you're too old to be in the Olympics. No one has said, oh, it's because you wear red shirts. So it's nothing like that. It's just that I didn't pass muster. And so I, ha I have less than average achievement in those areas, right? Since I've got zero and the human average is greater than zero, right? Now, what this means is that we can go through these different plausible stories about how both men and women are treated less fairly than the other in our society. And we can just see whether there's research on these things and uh, to and figure out the extent to which they hold water. The really big one that economists have worked on is the pay gap. So of course it is true that on average, women make less money than men. The question though is why, is it just unfairness? Is it just people in our society say, you know, women, let's pay them a lot less. I just don't <laughs> like them and then they're annoying. They like to, you know, whatever, whatever complaint you might have, right? Now, when you put it that way, there's something really hard to believe about it from the surface, namely, it's really true that women are paid less than equally qualified men. Why don't businesses just fire all their men and replace them with equally qualified women for lower pay and become incredibly wealthy? It seems like this is one of the easiest, most simple-minded business strategies one can imagine. If it worked, wouldn't it have been done to a massive extent already? And yet we really don't see this. So that's at least a reason to be suspicious. If it's like women are paid 30% less for the same work, why do we hire men at all then? Why does it get rid of the men overpaid turkeys and replace them with women just as good for a lot less money and pocket the difference? Now, that is pure economic theory, although I'd say it's about as good as pure economic theory gets in terms of just how convincing it is to hear it. It's like, hmm, yeah. Yeah, it is kind of hard to believe that we're just paying equally qualified workers 30% 30 less permanently. But in any case, there's a lot of statistical work on this where people say, let's go and make some obvious adjustments. Let's adjust for full-time versus part-time work. Let's adjust for hours of work because there's a big difference between a full-time job of 35 hours and a full-time job of 70 hours. Mm -hmm. Let's adjust for things like what your college major was because it's pretty clear why STEM majors would get paid more because they can just do much more amazing things than non-STEM people, right? You got stuff like that. You've got things like, is it a job that you that is just nine to five you can check out of and not worry about? Or is it a job where you're always needing to be checking your phone to see whether there's one more thing that you need to do? Is it a risky job? Is it a dangerous job? Is it an uncomfortable job? Anyway, 
when you go and make adjustments like this, these are pretty obvious adjustments, you'll see that statistically almost all of the pay gap between men and women goes away. And so it looks like this, possibly the, big, the single biggest complaint of feminists in our society is just false, right? It's not true that women are being arbitrarily paid less just because people are mean. Rather, it looks like what's going on is that women choose different kinds of work. Uh, a book that had quite a bit of influence on me was called Why Men Earn More by a guy named Warren Farrell. He just listed 25 of the main differences between, between the kinds of jobs men do on average, the kinds of jobs women do on average, uh, not in order to say, ha ha, but rather to say, look, women, if you want to go and make more money, here's 25 dimensions along which you could rethink your career in order to do that. When you read them, you realize, wow, the things men are doing to make extra money kind of sound unpleasant. Things like you know, work a night shift or live in an undesirable area of the country, right? And when you read this is on the one hand, you, say, you could say, well, okay, these are 25 opportunities to make more money. You could do that. You could also look at it and say, ah, now I understand why I'm not making as much as other people. It's because I have chosen a more pleasant lifestyle. I wanna have a better work-life balance. Right. And of course, also as a man, you could read this and say, gee, why am I killing myself for this extra money? Right? Why don't I go and do a job that is more internally rewarding and not worry so much about money, which honestly, as a college professor, that resonates with me to a high degree. I remember once I had a colleague who quit to make five times as much money as an economic consultant. My dad was saying, oh, could he get you a job? And I'm like, I don't want that job, dad. He has to suffer for his money. I get to do whatever I want. Yeah, I, I do remember once uh, when I was at Galvanize going through the data science program, I, I realized past a certain point, nearly everybody working on something was, was a guy. Like everyone else had gone home and it wasn't many, but they were all men. And I, yeah. and I remember thinking in, in those terms you just described, like, I bet that's going to be reflected in the statist statistical averages that we yes. see someday. Like one, if one of these men founds a billion dollar company, it's going to skew everything uh, yeah. and, and the rest will be washed yes. out. And at the same time, people will be very uncomfortable discussing what's going on. Uh, the comedian Bill Burr had this, has this great routine where he talks about a, this was actually a televised incident where a star from the WNBA, women's basketball, went and read the riot act to a whole bunch of people in the, in the NBA, especially team owners, managers, people like that. And is really just, you know, saying like, I like, you know, the women in the, you know, the players in the WNBA are paid so much less than in the NBA. Could you possibly care to explain that as anything other than discrimination? And they're all keeping their mouth shut. And Bill Burr's there saying, everyone knows what the answer is. They're just terrified to say it. It's like, yeah, but hardly anyone wants to come to your games. Right? So, yeah, you're paid less because you have hardly any customers. Right? Like, without our subsidies, you might not exist at all. But this is a case where people shut their mouths and pretend to be confused and just hope the problem goes away. Uh, since I've got tenure... You know, many people were, were afraid for me, friends saying, oh, you shouldn't write this book, bad stuff will happen. I said, look, I've got tenure, I'm going to stick my neck out and pleasantly, in a friendly manner, say the ugly truths that ought to be said. Well, I applaud your courage. Someone needs to do that. And uh, economics. So far, so far, go, you know, so far, so good. Nothing bad has happened to me at all. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. 
head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Well, fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, hopefully that's true after the Futurati podcast appearance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so do, do you... I mean, do you view this as a problem to be solved? Uh, I am aware of a couple of different uh, caveats that uh, complicate the pictures. I, I mean, I haven't really looked into it, but from what I understand, there are a number of studies indicating that in, in relatively more uh, equitable societies, I mean, you Scandinavian countries, like the, the gender pay gap actually opens up a little bit more. Like when people mm-hmm. have every opportunity to do what they want to do with their own lives, there's just a fault line between the two sexes, which does not perfectly sort everyone, but it's, right. it's big enough to be reflected. And, you know, maybe that that's just how it is. And it's not necessarily a thing we need to wring our hands over and, uh, and pass legislation to fix. You know, on the other hand, maybe we're not doing everything we can do to encourage, you know, bright young women to become mathematicians and engineers. I mean, I tell my daughter every chance I can that she can do whatever she wants to. And I explain engineering concepts to her when I write code, I sit her down. Maybe she'll choose to do something with it. Maybe she won't. Um, and that's, that's for her to decide. But it seems like we might still be leaving something on the table if we're not doing everything we can to make it obvious to talented women that they they can pursue these careers um mm-hmm. does, does that make sense what i'm saying well so saying we should do everything we can is the kind of statement that i always go after it's like what our whole society should revolve around that how about having time to go and watch tv how about having time to go and take a vacation that should be and do any of those things none of those things yeah, yeah so yeah like yeah yeah so, you know, so this but you know this is the way that politicians talk they mm-hmm. make hyperbolic statements that sound really good, but are actually on reflection, ridiculous and absurd. So yeah, say we should be doing everything that we can. You know, like if, you, if it were, you know, should we make a reasonable effort to go and expose people to different options? I'd say yes, but, but here again, it shouldn't just be exposing daughters, expose sons. There's a lot of things that sons never think about and why not go and expose them? Why in particular single out daughters for, for exposure to the wonderful options of life, rather than saying, let's expose kids to the wonderful options of life. You know, I say this is really, the, the feminist ideas are so baked into our whole way of even discussing it. It's just hard to get out of them because, you know, even after saying, okay, so it's not really true, perhaps that, well, that men are treated more fairly women in our society, but still, what can we do to help women? It's like, well, if they're not really treated less fairly than men, then why especially should we be trying to help them? Why not be trying to help all kids? Why not, re- not be, be paying attention to saying, you know, like there's a bunch of boys that never try art. Well, let's see whether they might like that. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of things to be working on. And I would just say that you know, if it were really true that our society treated women terribly unfairly, that would be a priority to go and rectify that. If it is not true, then it's not a priority. It's one of many possible things that you might want to do with your time. Since I got a daughter, then yeah, sure, of course, I'm interested in going and helping her out. Of course, I tried to go and steer my sons as well. I tried to go and think about what things would be beneficial to each of them. You know, of course, if a kid already is good in some areas, then you may not, then you say, all right, well, that kid's doing fine there. They don't need me. So again, it's one where I would say, you know, case by case. And just not with a presumption that women should be first in line for special treatment, which or, or for rectification. That could be true if they were being treated terribly, but if that's not true, then then they should not be in the front of the line. Well, very good. Um, I think I agree with all of those things. Um, Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it. 
give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Looking forward, do you see any way of having more productive conversations on this front? This is something I, I wring my hands about. Sometimes I think uh, I should write a book, and sometimes I think I should just wash my hands of it all and, and, and find, build a cabin in the woods and, and let the world do what it will. I mean, as an economist, you've got tenure, you've, you've got these advantages. What do you think about the state of discourse and how it could be improved? Hmm. So I would start with be the change you want to see in the world. It's a cliche, but it's one of the best cliches. So if you want to have reasoned conversations about feminism, start by making some reasoned statements about feminism. Like, don't be upset. Don't be angry. Just say, look, here's some things I've been thinking. Here's why I've been thinking them. What do you think? Right. That is the right, the right way to have a conversation. And again, especially you know, unilaterally try to be better than other people. Don't wait around and say, well, as long as they're yelling at me, I'm going to yell at them. If that's what it is, you might as well not even talk. Yeah. Instead, you know, like, you know, make the, you know, make the first move, try to, you know, so bend over backwards to exemplify reasonable civil behavior, really friendly behavior. I, you know, there's a lot of people who got mad at me just for the title of this book. Don't be a feminist and say, you're just trying to provoke <laughs> people. And I said, look, I am not. I understand why you would think that, but I'm not trying to provoke anyone. I don't want anyone to be angry. I do want my position to be clear, right? Because that's the whole point. I don't want anyone to become a feminist, and I don't. And I want the people who are currently feminists to to apostatize. I want them to deconvert and say I don't believe that anymore. That's my goal, right? So why? Because I think it's a false doctrine, and it's causing a lot of harm both for the adherents and for society. Um, particular, like, honestly, I said, like, if I just stop my daughter from being a feminist, then I consider this whole book a tremendous success. Demographically, she's, she's only 10. She doesn't care about this stuff one way or the other. But demographically, she is very likely to be a feminist unless I do something about it. Um, my view is feminist arguments are so weak and my arguments are so strong that if I just go and talk to her about it in a reasonable way, I think that will at least raise a lot of doubts in her mind. And she's not going to be a fanatic for this stuff. And of course, maybe I'll be disappointed, but I, I'm pretty, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Let's see. Well, yes. Well, I was going to ask if you, if you have a model for how it is that ideas such as this are able to metastasize in the way that they have. I, I don't know. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, but it's just, you're, you're right. It, this happens often where when you actually get into it a little bit, it's, you realize there's almost no substance to it at all. I mean, there's almost mm -hmm. no reason to think any of these things. And I have other examples I could throw out. So, I mean, is it just that it, it like it has this ring of truthiness? It sort of vaguely seems right. And people have had certain bad experiences. And so they can kind of map the claims onto that. And the statistics it sort of makes sense. Right. And you don't think too carefully about it. Well, what is this process that allows these sort of quarter baked ideas to become so prominent and so lodged into the culture? Hmm. So the ideas that are really successful are ones where when you first hear it, it sounds good. Yeah. It doesn't even have to really sound true so much as it's just the kind of thing people would like to believe. All right. So you, you could have a, a quite, you know, start with a pretty absurd statement, like someone was raised from the dead, but that still says, oh, wow, that sounds really great being raised from the dead. I'd like to be raised from the dead. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in believing this. So that's one start is just having your central tenets be things that sound good. 
And then it also really helps if you combine it with a whole lot of fear, right? So if you make people feel like if I question this, you're going to get angry at me. So I better go. So I'm therefore I'm scared of you and I'm going to at least pretend to agree with you. I think that's a lot of what's going on as well. All right. So, and, and I will say, you know, this is true for a lot of doctrines, but I do think that feminism is very high on the, on the, on the spectrum of being very prone to anger, even in the face of extremely reasonable, mild manner questions. And therefore there's a lot of fear of the movement, which leads people to just keep it, keep their mouth shut or only discuss the real views with very close friends when there are no witnesses around. I mean, I've written a bunch of controversial books. I only write controversial books. I've written books attacking public education, written books mm -hmm. saying that voters are irrational, books saying that we should open up the borders and let in anyone who wants to migrate here. And for some of these people said, oh, like, aren't you a little worried? But the level of fear on my behalf that my friends have felt for all my other books is nothing compared to the fear they felt for this book. This is one where I had multiple friends calling up and staging many interventions saying, look, Brian, I know what you're trying to do here, but this is dangerous. You're playing with fire. This is going to ruin your career. Right? And you know, like, I was very grateful that the friends cared enough to go and call and, and tell me this. Right? And I didn't just go and ignore them. I spent a few weeks thinking about it. But after thinking about it, I said, look, this is what I believe. I've, I've, I'm, I'm making good arguments. This is, this is not just meant to be provocative. This accurately describes what I really think. So I'm going to go and proceed with it. But still, you know, like I'm grateful to have friends who care. In any case, just the level of fear of the feminist movement that exists in our society seems to be close to the maximum you can get. It's already pretty problematic that it was yeah. such an issue and so many people were afraid for you. Yeah. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Well, right. and, uh, and by the way, going back to the pay gap, what's, part of what's striking to me is not just that the evidence that the pay gap is in fact caused by any kind of, of unfairness is correct. But also this evidence has been around for decades and most feminists continue to make the same accusations, seemingly with no interest in any of the research. And just like, well, hmm, do you not check? Do you not care? What's going on here? It, it does seem like there is, again, this implicit threat, you better not even mention the facts or else we are going to bite your head off. Yeah, I'm also interested in that phenomenon. I. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it either, but how is it that it becomes so baked into a person's identity that it's, it's almost like the sunlight. It's, it's the way you see everything. And it's, it's yeah. really hard to stand back in that way and question if there's like emotional barriers, like what, what's that cognitive process like? Do I have anything that's like that? Yeah. You know, of course uh, you can see that there's a long history of human religion where there's sacred things and people get really angry at you if you question the sacred things or they might do worse than just get angry at you. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 20th century, many people have observed that politics has become the new religion and people feel about politics the way that uh, today, the way that people felt about religion during the wars of religion hundreds of years ago, right? Um, now, uh, that doesn't explain why feminism is particularly anger prone, but I would say that you know, obviously some political view is gonna be this way. I mean, as to what's going on, I think that Contrary to the view that feminism is totally a modern invention, 
What I would say is that it builds on and amplifies a human universal. And the human universal is just caring extra about female well-being and female suffering, especially. So there's this long-lived slogan of women and children first, the idea that men should be ready to go and sacrifice themselves in order to protect women. As far as I know, this exists in every human society. This is not something that we invented in the last 50 years or 100 years. It's just been around for ages. You can read ancient works and they discuss how you know that, some, that a group was terrible because they also hurt women. It's one thing to murder all the men, like everybody does that, but to murder the women too, that's terrible. Or if you remember Star Wars episode two, when Anakin is confessing to Padme, he goes, and I killed the same people, not just the men, but the women and the children, right? right? And it's one where, you know, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's space opera, it's written actually for people in our society, but still tapping in to this idea of a universal human norm that it's really bad for women to suffer and men should do you know, you know, like almost anything in their power to stop that from happening. So I think that's been around for ages. And a lot of what, what feminism managed to do was to take this very basic human feeling and then turn it into a philosophy. Right? Uh, to the point where now when anyone argues with feminists, it seems like they are practically saying, I am like one of those horrible people from the Bible that murdered women or something like that. Yeah. Right? Okay. I mean, it's the same kind of feeling where it's like, this person is so awful. He wants to hurt women. It's like, I don't want to hurt women. I just think they're saying something false. <gasps> you know, like that's a kind, that's just what someone who wants to hurt women would say. You know, it's right. also someone whose face with some incorrect statements would say, but what do you want me to do? Yeah. Well, we want you to shut up or better yet feign agreement. But you're not going to. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad that you're out there fighting the good fight. Um, where, where would you send one people? Of, one, to, of, one of many. One of many. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of, sort of a venture capitalist of controversy. You're out there just starting a lot of fires and pissing a lot of people off. But uh, yeah, I, I think I, is it like, like my goal is never to piss anyone off. I say <laughs> in absolute sincerity, my dream world is one where everyone is happy and we all just have fun conversations all the time and everyone gets along. If another if another person is ever angry again in my presence, that would be too soon. Like I just I, I never need to send to be around another angry person again. Uh, that's not my goal. Uh, my goal is just to say things that are true and not widely believed. Right, and I try to say them in the friendliest possible way. Right, you know, to be more persuasive, but also look, I I'm not here to go and upset anyone. I'm just here to go and help people and help myself get to the bottom of fundamental questions of human society. Well, if people are interested in getting to the bottom of fundamental questions of human society alongside you, where would you send them? Uh, well, so all my books are available on Amazon. Uh, the new book, Don't Be a Feminist, Essays on Genuine, Ju on Genuine Justice is an Amazon exclusive. You can get it for 12 bucks in the paperback or 9.99 in hardcover. Despite record setting inflation, I have not raised the prices. So can you <laughs> afford not to buy? <laughs> Appreciate that so much, Dr. Kaplan. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great day. You as well. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.